Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Right. Lord God, as your Word is declared this morning, we pray that your truth would go with it. That your spirit, he would be here. He would be active among us. That he would impart life to your people. That he would give us conviction where we are in error. And repentance unto life. We ask all of these things in confidence. Knowing that you hear your people and desire what is best for us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but... That was a week last week. Like seriously. If you, if you took your, your head out of your own little bubble and you paid attention to what's going on around us, how do we live at this time? That, that's something I struggle with all the time because part of my job is to tell people how to live. Uh, and of course we use Scripture to do that, but the more I look around the clearer it is becoming that our society is in the middle of committing suicide. It's, it's killing itself. We are watching, quite honestly, a, a modern day living out of Romans chapter 1 where God is handing us over to our sins. And you are seeing the absurdity of what our sins look like. We are living in a time where I find myself constantly pleading with people to turn and to live, but to watch them continue headlong and determined towards death, and then convinced that that is a good way. That's the day you and I live in. We know something is deeply wrong, but we are way too prideful to turn from our current course. You can think from our, our crazy economics of never-ending end, spending in a national debt that is truly absurd, and yet to even cut back just a little bit from borrowing is considered an attack upon people. As if we can just continue to spend forever and ever and ever and nothing bad will ever happen. We like to say we think or we care about our kids and our grandkids' future. Not until you deal with that. You can think of the constant deaths of despair that we see in our communities. We can think of the people who... Um, who regularly, we, the people who we regularly seem to produce as a society who think that they're somehow justified or somehow it's a good idea to walk into a school and kill innocent children. This isn't a rare event anymore. But what kind of a society regularly produces that? Not a healthy one. I mean, we can have some necessary discussions about guns, sure. But we used to have a whole lot more guns in this country and it never happened. What kind of a country produces people over and over again that go and kill nine-year-olds for fun? 
That's not a healthy people. We're desperately sick. And that sickness is only exasperated by our pride. We can't even look ourselves in the mirror and admit how sick we are. That what we're doing certainly isn't working. And that is the struggle of living in this day. It would be easy to slip into despair. It would be easy to keep our heads down. It would be easy to compromise with the spirit of our age. And yet that spirit is holy at odds with Christ. And that will only lead to more death and chaos. To put it in as clear terms as I can put it, there is no future in our current course. No future beyond death. I've spoken many times to you about the need for us to build our life on some sort of solid foundation. And that solid foundation for Christians begins not at the cross, but with the Creator God. If there is no Creator God, then there is nothing of any meaning in this life at all that follows. And I think that is exactly the point in which our society is struggling. Because once you deny that God exists, there are really only two different paths that we can go down as a people. And the first one, you, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, from this pulpit. I guess I should say I've talked about. The fancy name for it is, is existentialism. And one of its main thinkers was the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And this is the idea boiled down, as simple as it can be. Existence comes before meaning. And as you exist before you have any meaning. And so any meaning that you have to have, you get to make up for yourself. If there's any meaning in this life, you have to find it and make it for yourself. It is the theme of a million kids' shows. It's the theme of just about every public school classroom in this country today. Nothing is created with inherent meaning, but you and I have to find that for himself. So for example, your biology has no inherent meaning. You get to just determine it for yourself. We make ourselves de facto gods. All meaning is relative to the individual, which is really just means there is no meaning. You just get to distract yourself with some until you die. The other option, we can call it nihilism or absurdism. I like the second one because it's better. This is based on the work of people like Frederick Nietzsche. He said, if God is dead, then everything is nothing. Right? Nihil means nothing. Nihilism means nothingism. Right? Think God created ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. But another philosopher who worked with this, Frederick Nietzsche, and who has tried to counter existentialism, Sartre, that there is meaning, but you have to make it, was Albert Camus. And he held that all of life was absurd. This is absurdism. He's like, guys, if there is no God, if there is no truth, then let's not pretend like there is, like Sartre does. Let's just accept that all of this is absurd. Right? And we should live as if life is absurd. Now, guys, I, I, I want to make this clear. So Sartre says, you know, there, there really isn't any meaning. You can, you can make some for yourself. Camus is like, he's just lying to you. If there's no meaning, then there's no meaning. So don't Pretend like there is. These are the best thinkers non-Christians have. Right? They dress it up and make it sound better as it comes down to popular culture. But these guys are being honest. Right? I read you the quote from Bertrand Russell many times. Like, this is just unending despair. These are the best thinkers that we, they have. But they're being honest. If there is no creator God, then your path 
and your life is hopeless. And this is the very fight at the heart of our moment. We want to replace God with ourselves. And so we set off making our own meanings. But we know, deep down, that's not going to work. The most honest of us then go into despair and realize that if there is no God, then none of this really matters. Put it another way, you cannot tell our children from the moment they set foot in school, there is no God, there is no meaning to life, you are a cosmic accident no different than a monkey or a rock, there is no right and wrong, you must also then choose your own identity and purpose, and oh yeah, you're also a victim, and if anybody disagrees with you, they're denying your existence and not expect to reap exactly what we're reaping right now. Despair and death. Like if you train people up in victimhood, they will justify doing whatever they want. And then people in the media will excuse it for them after they've done it. I spent most of the week laying in bed sick, thinking these things over. Reading stories about a pastor's daughter being shot because she was trying to warn everybody else. And then having people trying to excuse what the shooter did. And the week before, I was at a rally and people were threatening me because of what I believed. I laughed it off that week. I'm not laughing it off so much anymore. It really is Christ or chaos. It is God or nothingness. It is meaning or absurdity. You can either die to the self Follow Christ, find life. Or you can reject Christ, chase yourself, and lose absolutely everything with it. And yeah, I mean everything. So what should we build our lives upon? 1 Peter chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, is a call to build our lives upon the work of Christ, especially by looking forward to his return. It is a call to look outside of yourself for meaning and purpose, and it is a call to fully set your hope upon Christ in his return. How do we do that? Well, Peter tells us how to do just that. The first way to set your hope fully in the gospel, in Christ, is to prepare your mind for action. The verbiage here in the original language could read more like this. Gird up the loins of your mind for action. Back in the day, people would wear a long linen, male or female, and this would either go down to about their, their knees or to their ankles. But when the time came for them to enter into strenuous work or to go fight a battle, they would take up that long linen and they would gird it up and they would tuck it into their belt so that they were ready for the hard work that was about to come. And so Peter picks up that imagery here. And his point is clear. You and I have to prepare our minds for strenuous work. There's both a physical and, and mental aspect to this. Put it plainly, Christianity is not just about saying a prayer and then waiting for Jesus to return one day. The Christian life is meant to be one of working and learning. Working on yourself, repenting of your own sins, believing as the Spirit brings conviction in your life, laying down your life for your kids, your spouse, your family, your friends, for your church, because Christ has done this for you. 
This is the Christian life. We all have different places and assignments that God has given to us, but the call remains the same wherever you find yourself. Prepare your minds for action and for hard work. Christianity has always, until very recently, placed an extreme emphasis upon learning, on growing in knowledge. And quite literally, the word disciple means student. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a student of Christ. In fact, when Jesus called his disciples, they returned with him with the label rabbi, which means teacher. The office of teacher has always been vital to the health of the church. Faithful teachers produce faithful people. Unfaithful teachers produce unfaithful people in unfaithful churches. Cowards in the pulpit produce cowards in the pews. We have a little bit too much of that today. Jesus, when he was walking around Israel, he saw the crowd, and the Gospels tell us that he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. What does this compassion that Christ has for the sheep without a shepherd drive him to do? He taught them. He had compassion for them, so the teacher teaches. Education has always been essential to Christianity. This is why the Christians started the modern university system, though it is now much bereft of God. The idea was that the university was built upon a universal truth, and that universal truth was God, and that all the disciplines of education revolved around this one central truth, and that for centuries, even unbelievers and pagans came to the church to be educated. And through that, the church evangelized the world. In fact, my wife and I know a family who grew up in a, a foreign country. Uh, she, was not, she did not grow up in a Christian home, but her parents wanted her to get a good Christian education, so they sent her to the Christian school where she was converted. The Christian church here in America needs to start thinking about that m- more. A Christian schools shouldn't be so separated from the church. The education is missions. If we want to reach our world, it's not just educating our own children, but it's having our education be so great, which compared to the public education isn't asking much, that they come to us. Education is never neutral in God's world. The universities were named for their belief that God bound all truth together. And we have been exposed to this reality that education is never neutral, as we see that our government schools today are far from neutral. And I say this with full conviction, and if you get mad at me, it's a price I'm willing to pay. If at all possible, get your kids out of those schools. If it's at all possible, get your grandkids out of those schools. They're hellholes. They are opposed to God in every facet at this point. I understand that some situations don't allow that. But if at all possible, get them out tomorrow. For Christians, one way to set our hope fully on Christ is to engage all or the totality of ourselves, 
to do as Paul has commanded in Romans chapter 12, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, or as Christ says in the Gospels, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. That is all of you. To prepare your minds for action, to get to work, and to do it all for the glory of God. And we are to do this, Peter says, by being sober-minded. That is, we are not to react in inflammatory or unbalanced ways. You are not to appear like you're a drunk in how you live. Another way to say this is you are to have a well-balanced mind. Peter knows that the stress of suffering or even persecution can make Christians do some pretty crazy things. And we have a lot of examples of that throughout history. Think, Think about this. More times than I care to admit, there's a list on, on there online somewhere. More times than, and this should really make us embarrassed, but someone in the church throughout history has almost always claimed that they knew exactly when Jesus was going to come back. And they gave you a date. And we're still here. For example, there was a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. He gave an exact date the author did for this. It was September sometime. Uh, Obviously, it didn't happen. So then he said, well, actually, it's going to happen in October of 88. Well, it didn't happen. Why do I bring this up? Because some Christians were so convinced of this that they quit their jobs, sold what they had. That's not acting sober-minded. That's not being well-balanced in your judgment. Christians are to act with thoughtfulness, with reason, and then with boldness and conviction. This sober-mindedness is a call to action for sure, but it is not a call to knee-jerk sensationalism. And we need to be aware of that. Because in case you didn't know, anybody in the world can post anything on the internet or on YouTube. Some of it's true. Some of it's definitely not. I mean, for goodness sakes, I know people who think Donald Trump is still president. I'm like, guys... He's not. All right? Just because those who disagree with us call everything conspiracy theories doesn't mean there aren't real conspiracy theories out there that are crazy. And Christians should have nothing to do with. Let's be fair, there's plenty of conspiracy theories in the mainstream media as well. I knew a family growing up that we were close to that was so sure that Y2K was going to be the end of the world. So they packed up everything they had, sold everything they had, and removed to a remote area up north to prepare. 23 years later, we're still here. The apocalypse did not happen. Hype and fear sells, but it's not always true. We have to act as sober-minded individuals. Ready for action, yes, but thoughtful action. Because here's the thing. The return of Christ is supposed to shape everything we do. Look at verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is his second coming, his return at the end of history that brings with him his kingdom. And so part of setting your hope fully is to always keep that end in mind with how you are living. To look forward to the promises of full forgiveness, to the promise of new life, to the new creation, to look at all of that and have that shape how you live. 
But that needs, what needs to be made clear here is this. That is not a call to escapism, to just escape the world. It's not a call to just sit there and do nothing. But rather, it's a call that because Christ is coming back, you can go forward in confidence, ready for action. Because he is coming, and he will win. When Christ comes, we will get the fullness of his grace. All of it. At the unveiling of Jesus, we will be made new. All the promises will come, and our inheritance will be given to us. And we are called to organize our lives upon that foundation. Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose again, and Christ is coming back. That is the form and the shape of what it means to be a Christian. It is the story of this world, and it is our hope, with Christ at the center. Contrary to much end times discussion, which pushes us to withdraw from this life, which teaches us to daydream and lack sober-mindedness, the coming of Christ is meant to inform how you live now. And that doesn't mean just going to end times conferences. The coming of Christ motivates us to live rightly, for we know he will judge us. The coming of Christ gives us hope because the darkness is not the final word. The coming of Christ gives us direction for life to serve the once and future king. The return of Christ is essential to everything we do. It is not just a future hope, but it is hope for now as we wait for the future. At the revelation of Christ, his rule over everything, which is in some ways concealed right now, will be made plain for all of time. Knowing this truth must become central to your life. And this means no matter how loud reality deniers yell at you or me, Christianity has never been and never will be on the wrong side of history. Cultural pressure must not move us for we know who rules over history. The next aspect of setting our hope fully in Christ is to refuse to be conformed to our old ways of living. Listen to verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We are to have a way about us, an obedience to Christ about us, that prevents us from returning to how we lived before we knew Christ. And when you see the world rightly, through the lens of the gospel, your passions change. So, so let me make this clear. This is not about Christians becoming passionless, that you are to have no passions whatsoever. But it is that you are not to be ruled by your old passions and that you are to have new, greater, and deeper passions for how you live now. You are to desire what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. And you are to see all of that in light of Christ and as a good gift coming from the hand of God. You can measure the degree of how much you've set your hope fully by how much you still live like an unbeliever. You can measure the degree of how much you have set your hope fully in Christ by how much you still live like an unbeliever. There should be in your life a growing and noticeable difference between you and those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Your life should be marked by 
self-denial, service to others, joy, beauty, forgiveness, and a willingness to stand for what is right. Have you lived, or how you lived before you knew Christ has to be put off and put to dead, or death. And that does happen slowly over time. You will never do it perfectly in this life, but the direction should be evident. I would hope that if uh, people who knew me in high school saw me today, they would say, there's still a lot of that old Levi in there. His personality is largely the same. He's still kind of uh, willing to just say things. But man, he's different. He's very different than how he was in high school. Not perfection, but a different direction. This can be a real struggle for us. A struggle to not see how the world lives. Right? When you look out at the world, you're like, they get to do whatever they want. They get to indulge every passion they've ever had. And it doesn't seem like anything bad ever happens to them. They get everything they want. Everything's peachy. But that's not true. The proof is, is literally everywhere. Do not be envious of their way of life. It is death and chaos, both here and now. Like, you and I are beset with lies and temptations. But it is now very clear what lies people believe. Do they not carry it? And like, it's never been easier to tell what a person's worldview is than today. Do they not carry it in how they carry themselves? Do they not carry it in their hairstyles, in their mutilation of their bodies, and how they carry their entire selves? Do they not scream it out to you in the hollowness behind their eyes? I don't say this to judge any of them because I genuinely have sympathy for them as I stood across from them and tried to have rational discussions with the irrational people. I say it out of sympathy because it's sad and I don't want that for them and I don't want it for you. But we've been sold a lie. The more you buy into it, the more it's going to rob you of your joy in this life. The more it will turn you inside out and the more you will get uglier. Like if there's one thing you should notice about our, the rival worldview, it's like it's becoming manifestly ugly. And they revel in the ugliness. Now, please don't hear me saying that I'm judging beauty and ugliness by what Hollywood has put forward as beauty. It's not what I'm doing. Don't have time to unpack that right now. But it's objectively ugly. But their religion and their beliefs are ugly. I want you to think about something here. An example. I remember... Uh, when the movie, The Hunger Games, came out in the theaters. Mostly targeted towards, like, teenage girls. So take that for whatever it is. When it came out, I had no interest in seeing it. Yet everyone was talking about it. So Emily and I decided, we're going to go see that movie. That was a very hard movie for me to sit through for, for many reasons. But the more I reflect upon it, there are a lot of lessons in that movie that you and I need to heed. For example... In that movie, it is the city and its population and their decadent insanity that is oppressing the smaller and rural districts. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's Minnesota in a nutshell. But one of the things that stuck out to me was how the people in the city dressed in absolute absurdities and especially their hairstyles and whatnot. And they thought it was cool, but the author was using their insane dressing styles to make a point. Right? A point that is now lost upon us. 
A few short years later, that type of dress and carrying of yourself is common in the world today. That's why we keep saying it's harder and harder to write satire today because tomorrow it becomes a reality. They think it looks good, but the one thing that that author was showing us is that it was absurd. So what is going on on a human level in our world today? We are quite literally eating, are losing our souls. David Wells speaks of this oddity of our day, this paradox as he calls it. He said it is that we have never had so much and yet we've never had so little. Never have we had more choices, more easily accessible education, more freedoms, more affluence, more sophisticated appliances, better cars, better houses, more comfort, or better health care. This is one side of our paradox. The other side, though, is that by every measure, depression has never been more prevalent, anxiety has never been higher, or confusion more widespread. We are not holding our marriages together very well anymore. Our children are more demoralized than ever. And our teens are committing suicide at the highest rates ever. And we are incarcerating more and more people. What's going on? We've never had our lives so easy, but we've never been more victimized. Could it be that we're building everything on an absolutely unstable foundation? Could it be that our age is one beset with lies that drives us both individually and corporately to anxiety, depression, and death? That we are killing ourselves with the very things that we think are saving us? Well, what are we to do? Well, first, pity. Because a lot of these people, especially the children, are just lied to and entrapped and ensnared by these lies. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil ideologies and the sinister master behind them. And so we must pray for those entrapped. We must seek to love them and to engage them with truth. We must stand for the truth. And this means you don't live like them. Christianity is not about conforming as close as possible to our insane age so that we get a hearing. For that insanity is exactly what is killing your neighbor. But Christianity is about conforming ourselves to Christ. Our hearts should break for those who are deceived, and at the same time, our hearts should burn with righteous anger towards those exploiting and deceiving them. Both. Second, we need to not be conformed to this world, to set your hope fully on the coming of Christ. Their way of life is clearly not working. The fruit of the tree is clear for everyone to see. And this is why your mind needs to be prepared for action. You need to know scripture. You need to know yourself. You need to know your family. Parents, you need to know the strengths and weaknesses of your children and what lies this age is currently selling that would be aligned up with the weaknesses of your child so that you can disciple them to not be deceived by it. Fathers in particular, This is your job as the shepherd of the home. What is my son struggling with? What is my daughter struggling with? And how would Satan lie to him or her to get them out of the church? Prepare your minds for action and do it and counteract it. Be ready to explain these issues issues to your children. You do not want the first time that they come across this insanity when they are outside of your home. You need to prepare them while they are in your home. 
model how to live in this world because there are real dragons and real wolves out there who want to eat your children. Don't let them. The final way we can set our hope fully in Christ is to be holy. To be holy. Look at verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You have to notice here that Peter cites the Old Testament. In fact, he cites maybe the least favorite Old Testament book out there, Leviticus. I kind of like that book. That's just me. God himself is holy. A couple people got the joke. God himself is holy, described as three times holy, meaning he is perfect in his holiness. But that only leads us to the question, what is holiness? What is it? Well, no surprise, if you've studied theology, there's some disagreement as to what exactly holiness is, but Wayne Grudem's definition in his systematic theology is helpful. He writes this, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. The word holy, or to sanctify, means to set something aside, to separate it. That's what it means to be holy in the most basic sense. It means to be separated from something and to something else. For example, in the temple, there were holy utensils. Those utensils weren't making moral choices that were always right. But they were holy instead of common because they were set aside for use in the temple and taken away from common use. This is what it means to be set aside here. It has a double meaning. Set aside from sin and set aside unto the Lord. It is not just about being separated, but being rightly separated. You see, holiness in the Bible has, as Grudem explains, a relational and a moral aspect to it. It is relational because you are separated from something or someone and then set aside to someone or something or someone, in this particular instance, God. So it's relational. You have now belong to God. You have been sanctified, placed in his care and in relationship with him. And it is also moral. Holiness is also moral. It's about being free from evil. What am I being separated from? Sin. The rule of Satan. Evil. I'm separated from that which is evil and to that which is righteous. And so God's holiness is that he is wholly separated from sin and evil and wholly devoted to his own honor and glory. Now that may sound arrogant to you, but there's always a highest good. Like we reach the pinnacle at some point. God is the highest good. You want to be set aside to the greatest good. Well, for God, that's himself. He is the greatest good. If you were to be wholly separated unto yourself, that's not good. Because you're not the greatest good. You're not God. And so our God is holy, free from sin, and devoted to his glory and honor. Therefore, you and I should also be holy. Separated from sin and devoted to God. And now we come back to that already not yet tension. You are, in one sense, already holy if you are in Christ. You are already holy both relationally and morally. 
If you are in Christ, then you have been set aside objectively. You have been removed from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and you've been set aside for the kingdom of life, or in, of light. You are now in the service of God. In that way, you are holy. You are also objectively morally righteous, for Christ put his, or your sins upon himself and died for your sins, paying the debt, and gave you his righteousness. So you are also morally holy before God. But that sense of holiness, the already sense, is not what Peter is getting at here. There's also the not yet sense, where Peter commands us to be holy in how we live. So your standing before God is an objective reality, and as the Bible so often says, now live like that. Now live a holy life. Be holy in how you live. You are to separate yourself from sin in both thought and deed. You are to separate yourself unto the service of the Lord in all that you do, and you have or to intentionally live a life for Christ and his people. Peter wants us to live more in light of the reality of who we are in Christ. It is the holy, holy, holy Lord who is our God, and we are to be marked with that same holiness. So I want to stress here again, you do not need to be perfect. Christ is your perfection. If you could be perfect, you would not need Christ. But in Christ, you will be perfect. Never forget that. The totality of your life, how you live as a single person, how you live as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, as a teacher, a lawyer, a business owner, a member of the military, a stay-at-home mom, a tech guy, a blue-collar laborer, You are to do that as a holy individual, set aside for service to the Lord and unto God's glory. This does not mean that every single moment at your job or in raising your kids that you need to be thinking Jesus, 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 Jesus. But it means that Christ is your guide, he is your motivation, and he is the goal and direction of your life and of your career and of the raising of your family and whatever else it is that you are doing. You receive the good and the bad from his hand, and you enjoy the good, you praise God for that, you are refined by the bad, and you grow more into the image of Christ. In all things big and small, in the, in the crazy moments and the mundane ones, be holy, set aside to Christ. Setting your hope fully means looking for Christ's return. It means preparing your mind for action. It means not being conformed to this world, and it means pursuing a countercultural holiness. That is the foundation to living a life in an age that majors on the absurd. That is the foundation that will help you to stand when everything else is falling apart. That is the foundation upon which Christ has built his church. That is the foundation that will rise again when everything else in the society is nothing but burnt ash. Because Christ wins. So therefore, remain steadfast in turmoil and look unto Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again this morning that you've spoken to us in your word. We ask that you would help us to set our hope fully on the second coming of Christ that we would live lives marked by holiness, that our minds would be ready for action, 
And that we would not look like this world, but that we would look like Christ. May that be true of your church here. And may your spirit empower us to live that out. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.